All right. Good evening. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1? Last week in our study, we started looking at verses 5 to 7. I think a very important section. And uh, in the first four verses of this epistle, uh, Peter talks about the grace and divine power of God that saved us, or in other words, imparted spiritual life to us through the Holy Spirit. He then proceeds to tell us that not only has God given us spiritual life through the new birth, he further has deposited into our hearts and lives his divine nature, the very nature of God. I think this is what Peter talked about, what he meant in his first epistle, when he talked about things angels desire to look into. Angels stand in the presence of God. In that regard, they see him face to face. But no angel has God living inside of them. The good angels, right? And I think that's what Peter was alluding to when he said, talking about eternal life, things that angels desire to look into, that we have been given the very nature of God. I'm sure we don't fully grasp that, probably won't fully grasp that, this side of glory. As we studied last time, by virtue of the new birth, which includes the divine nature, and the Holy Spirit living inside of us, supplying us with His divine power, well, Peter tells us we have everything we need. We have all that is necessary to live the lives God wants us, to live lives of godliness. You see, guys, once we were born of God and have become the sons and daughters of God, as we said last week, that wasn't the end. You know, it's not the end of the story that God has saved us. Some people think of it that way, you know, it's like, uh, salvation was the, you know, was the bottom line. Well, no, it was the starting point. It was the starting line, really. And, uh, you know, we talked in John 4 how God wants to make us true worshipers. Why did God create us? Well, to keep us from going to hell. That's not why he created you. If God's desire in creating us was simply to keep us from go, excuse me, saving us, I should say, if God's whole purpose for saving us was simply to keep us from going to hell, a better solution would have been not to create anybody in the first place. Then nobody goes to hell. No, God had an ultimate purpose. Saving us was just the first, you know, the first step of it. After that, of course, well, he wants to make us true worshipers. That's, again, John 4. But from that point, from the point we are saved... Well, now it becomes, or God commands us, to grow in the Christian life. It means, it means that, uh, which means it becomes our responsibility to do as Peter said in verse 5, to give all diligence to our walk with the Lord. Very important. Paul said this to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. He said, take heed unto yourselves and over the flock which God has placed under your care. Look, I'm not going to be any good to you if I don't focus on my walk first. Some Christians say, I never pray for myself. Well, that's ridiculous. That's foolish. I pray for myself all the time. I need it. I'm always messing up. I, I'm always asking God for grace to, to walk with him more closely. How can I be a good pastor if I'm not really following Christ myself? Didn't Paul say, follow me as I follow Christ? So from the point we are saved, that, that's the starting point. And then God commands us now grow. That's what Peter is talking about. 
He's commanding us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we must grow. It's our responsibility to give all diligence. Yes, God saved us. But now we have a part in our sanctification, our growth, spiritually speaking. We need to give all diligence, verse 5, to our walk with the Lord. Again, the goal of our Christian life is to make us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. We've, we've looked at 2 Corinthians 3.18, which says that very thing. But for that to happen, and we're still reviewing from last week, we must desire it. Yeah, that's God's desire. That's God's goal in our lives, to make us into the image of Christ. But he's not going to do it against our will. He didn't force you to get saved against your will. And he's not going to force you to be sanctified into the image of Christ against your will. This is something we have to desire. We have to surrender to. And by God's grace, we have to pursue in the Christian life. Some people would get very upset to hear me say this. It's just simple biblical truth. This is only possible through a joint partnership and mutual cooperation between us and God's Spirit. For me to be made into the image of Christ. It's going to take me, my will, my surrender, and God's power. That's the only way I'm going to be conformed into the image of Christ. Now, of course, it all starts with saving faith, which brings the new birth. We've talked about that. But then Peter says that we need to add seven characteristics or seven virtues to our initial saving faith if we're going to be all that God wants us to be. So let's read these again. And, and we're still reviewing a little bit from last week. Verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. Again, the word add there, translated add, doesn't mean to add one at a time. As if, okay, when we achieve the first one, virtue, then we move on and work on achieving the second one and the third one and so on. No, that's not what the Bible is saying. The Greek word really means to supply generously. Supply generously to your saving faith these virtues. In other words, guys, we are not to limit the growth of these virtues in our lives. Notice I said that. We are not to limit. See, the Spirit of God lives inside of us. He's the Spirit of life. And where the Spirit of life is, there is going to be growth and fruitfulness. That's just natural, right? The only way we are not going to be fruitful, the only way we're not going to be all that God wants us to be, is if we hinder the flow of God's Spirit in and through our lives. How do we do that? By living carnal lives. By focusing on the flesh more than walking in the Spirit? Again, God doesn't force anything on us. Everything we need to be, all He wants us to be, is available to us through the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. But we have to want it. We have to pursue it. God's not going to you know, shake you in the morning, levitate you off the bed, float you into the front room, stick you on the couch, put a Bible in your hand, and say, okay, go for it. Do your devotions. We have to want that. It takes effort. Okay? Now, if I desire the things of God, he does work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I'm not saying the strength comes from us, but the will has to be there. The will has to be there. And so we, we don't hinder the flow of all the Spirit wants to do in the growth of these virtues through carnal living, but we are to continue drawing close to Jesus every day because as we do, these graces, these seven graces that Peter talks about will grow and develop simultaneously and naturally as our walk with Jesus grows 
and matures. Just like the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about that last time. However, for any fruit of the Spirit or qualities of godliness to grow in a Christian's life, again, we must be diligent to pursue godliness. That's God's goal. That's what he wants for us. Again, God does not make us holy against our will or without our involvement. There must be our desire, determination, and discipline on our part if we're going to grow in our walk with Jesus. And so, guys, with that in mind, Peter continues, add, as we said last time, the word add there is imperative in the Greek. Imperative means a command. So Peter's not saying, hey, think about this, would you, you know, get back to me, you know, when you decide what you want to do. So, you know, again, people think it's the Ten Suggestions. No, it's the Ten Commandments. It's one of the things God commands us to do, all right? This is one of them. We are not allowed by God to just simply coast as Christians. Once we get saved, there is a purpose that God has for us, and he commands us, you belong to me. When you gave your heart to my son, Jesus Christ, you entered into a covenant with me where you were going to be my slave. I was going to be your Lord. And as your Lord, I am commanding you not to live a static, lazy, fruitless life. you got to pursue these qualities, these virtues. So you add to your faith, first of all, virtue, verse 5. And the Greek word translated virtue means moral excellence. When God saved us, his goal was to make us godly, simply a contraction of God-like, and in particular, like Jesus, who is God. Even as we read in Romans 8, 29, that God saved us once again to conform us into the image of his Son. That was his goal. And so when we live lives of moral excellence, as Jesus did, we are fulfilling his purpose for our lives as his children. We could paraphrase what Peter is exhorting this way. We could say, to the faith that saved you, add a life of moral excellence that pleases God. To virtue, add knowledge, verse 5. Again, the word Peter used here for knowledge is an intellectual knowledge. An intellectual knowledge that comes through the study of something so as to become proficient in that subject or in that field of study. And from the context, it's obvious that what Peter wants us to become proficient in is in our knowledge of God's word. He's very simply telling us that we must be students of God's word if we're going to be able, through the power of the Holy Spirit, no doubt about it, to live the lives God wants us to live. We have to be students of the word. If we're going to be able to live the lives God wants us to live and become all he wants us to be. In fact, the Greek word means full knowledge. God doesn't want us to just have a little bit of knowledge of his word. A little knowledge of God's word can actually be a dangerous thing. There's a lot of folks who have read a little bit of the Bible. And then when some cult member knocks on their door and quotes that particular verse to them, which is really all they really know, one or two verses, but because the person knocking on the door recites that one verse in the course of the conversation, they think, oh, I've read, I've read that out of the Bible. I mean, this guy must know the truth. No, he knows a couple of verses that, that you happen to know. You've got to know God's word, the word Peter uses, full knowledge. Our goal should be as Christians to know God's word fully. Not just, you know, a verse a day keeps the devil away kind of a mentality. And there's a lot of Christians who do that. They, they open the Bible, read a verse quickly often pull it out of context, misapply it into their lives, and off they go. And it's a real problem today. And Peter says, look, 
to your virtue, your moral excellence, add a learned knowledge that comes from studying God's word fully and faithfully. It's a mature knowledge. A knowledge, the Greek word could also mean a knowledge that is growing. That's good because we'll never know God's word fully. But we should be mature enough through all the years we've studied the word to be able to teach it to others, at least share our faith intelligently with others. But we should always be growing. Um, our spiritual growth as Christians, guys, is tied directly to how much we feed on the Word of God. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Because in both of these epistles, Peter stresses the importance of knowing God's Word. As soon as you get saved, he wants you to start feeding on the Word of God because that's how you're going to grow, from infancy to maturity. But going back to 1 Peter 1, verse 22... He said, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. He's talking about receiving the gospel. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart, for you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. Drop down to verse 1 of chapter 2. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babes, you must crave the pure spiritual milk of the word so that you may grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment. And so Peter is just stating something very simple. When a physical child is born, that child cries for food. It wants to be fed when you were born of the Spirit, born again. The same applies. You must crave the pure milk of God's Word. As you drink of it, you will grow spiritually, and eventually you begin to eat solid food. In other words, you begin to dig into some of these doctrinal things and, and, uh, and know some of the deeper things of God. But it starts just by feeding simply on what God's Word is teaching. There's nothing worse than a Christian who has been a Christian for a while but really has not made it a point to study God's Word, and consequently he or she doesn't know hardly anything with regard to their faith. They can't even articulate it in the most basic sense. Hebrews 5, by this time you ought to be teachers of the Word, but you still have need to be taught the most basic principles of your faith. You have not discerned your senses through use of the Word to discern good and evil. Uh, you're not feeding yourself, and you're not applying the Word of God is the idea. That's why... Uh, people stay stunted in their spiritual growth. They're not putting the effort in, pure and simple. Now, he goes on to knowledge, okay, the study of God's word adds self-control, verse 6. The word translated self-control is a word that literally means holding oneself in, as in restraining oneself. The same word translated self-control in 2 Peter 1.6 is the very same Greek word Paul used in, in Galatians 5.23 when he listed self-control among the fruit of the Spirit, which tells me the kind of self-control that Peter is talking about is not you know working really hard to turn over a new leaf or make a New Year's resolution or just be real determined in your own strength and flesh to do certain things for God. This is a Spirit-anointed, uh, given self-control. It only comes through the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. And again, I believe that God's grace to be all that he wants us to be, including 
bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit and everything else that we need to do and how we need to grow as Christians, it's all dependent on the Holy Spirit living inside of us. But as we abide in Jesus, it comes forth. Apart from me, Jesus said in John 15, you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, together you will bear much fruit. Much fruit. Now, to self-control, verse 6, he continues, add perseverance. Perseverance. In other places in the New Testament, this Greek word is translated patience. In fact, that's how it's translated in James chapter 1. Turn there quickly. James chapter 1, starting with verse 2. James said, my brethren, count it all joy. I'll tell you what, carnal Christians have a real problem with this verse. Okay. Uh, Count it all joy when you fall into, come across, encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The word patience is a Greek word, is the Greek word hupomone. Sounds kind of Italian. Hupomone. This word comes from two Greek words. Hupa means under and meno, which means to stay, abide, or remain. And so the word hupomone basically means to remain under. To remain under. Picture somebody who is under a heavy load, but is choosing to stay there, carrying this heavy load instead of bailing, running away. Sometimes in the Christian life, we have a lot that is put upon us, a heavy trial or uh, going through some kind of an adversity. And the flesh wants to run. The flesh wants to bail. But the Christian who has this kind of a patience, this uh, hupomone, is somebody that's going to hang in there because they know it is not God's will that they bail on their families, on their marriage, on their church, whatever it might be. They hang in there. Commentator and historian William Barclay believes that patience is too passive a word to use in the translation of the Greek word hupomone. He said, and I quote, hupomone does not simply accept and endure. There is always a forward look in it. It is said of Jesus that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That is hupomone, Christian steadfastness. It is the courageous acceptance of everything that life can do to us and the transmuting of even the worst event into another step on the way upward, end quote. One ancient Greek philosopher called Hupomone the queen of virtues. Another described it as the frame of mind which endures. And so it's a word that also means endurance. Or, as it's translated in 2 Peter 1.6, perseverance. Now guys, what James is saying, And what Peter is no doubt alluding to is that trials are beneficial in that they build endurance in us. Endurance that allows us to finish our race, our ministry, which God has called us to. We've talked about this. Long-distance runners have to train every day to build up their endurance. It's painful. They've got to run miles every day. My son Bob was training for the Chicago Marathon this year. And in the course of training, like every day, he developed shin splints, so he couldn't run this year. But there is a certain level of pain that goes into training for a long-distance marathon. Chicago Marathon is, what, 26 miles? 
That's a marathon, right? The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not a sprint. You have to be in it for the long haul. And Paul loved to use sports metaphors. He was a real guy. He liked sports. And uh, the, the world he lived in, they had the, uh, the um, Isthmian Games in Corinth. And in Athens, they had the Olympic Games. Um, and it just, he just liked sports. And he used a lot of sports metaphors. But, uh, you, know, he, you know, he and Peter, Peter here weaves into what he is talking about, basically about endurance. Again, likening, Paul did likened it to uh, running a marathon. Um, but you see, trials is the pain that we need to help us endure. Uh, if everything was going real well and we never had any problems as Christians, and then one day uh, some little trial came our way, we wouldn't be able to handle it. We're so used to, right, to everything going so well, you know. Uh, we got a lot of little snowflakes in our country that, um, you know, have had it pretty good. They've had it so good, but they think they've had it so bad. But um, there's a lot of Christians who are fair-weather Christians, you know. They become Christians under the promises that uh, God was going to just bless them abundantly. They were going to be healthy. They were going to be wealthy. Have the nicest car uh, in on the block. One of the nicest houses in town, you know. God was going to prosper them. It was all about what he was going to do for them, laying up for them treasures on the earth. So much so that when adversity does come, they can't handle it. Many of them blame God because he didn't, he broke the deal. Uh, I don't remember signing any deal like that when I got saved. The deal was you lay down your will, you lay down all your goals, and you take up your cross and you follow after me. That was the deal I entered into. I don't know what they entered into. This is how it goes with our race for Jesus. Trials subject us to some pain, but it's designed by the Holy Spirit, our trainer, to build our endurance so that we finish the race he has set before us. One author said, Patience is not something that develops automatically. Hupomone, endurance. It's not something that develops automatically. We must work at it. James 1, verses 2 to 8, gives us the right approach. We must expect trials to come because without trials, we could never learn patience. We must, by faith, let our trials work for us and not against us because we know that God is at work in our trials. If we need wisdom in making decisions, God will grant that wisdom if we ask him. Nobody enjoys trials, but we do enjoy the confidence we can have in trials that God is at work, causing everything to work together for our good and his glory, end quote. So guys, in that regard, trials are good and perseverance is critical if a Christian is to grow and be all that God wants him or her to be. Reminds me of what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, talking about trials. He said not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. There is no other way for God to build in us certain qualities apart from trials and adversity. It's just God's way of whittling us and again, you know, make us into the image of Christ. You know, we're a, think of a big block of wood, okay, a bunch of blockheads. And adversity is the little chisel that he uses to chisel away from our lives certain things and eventually what emerges uh, is the image of Christ. I remember hearing years ago about a famous sculptor that was commissioned to um, sculpt out of granite uh, a statue of Abraham Lincoln. 
And so this granite block was delivered into this studio, and uh, for uh, weeks it seemed nothing was happening. I mean, there was obviously some carving going on, but, but nothing was taking form yet. And then one day, the person who cleaned up this uh, sculptor's shop walks in and sees the face of Abraham Lincoln and emerging in the stone and said to a person that was standing next to him, how did, I forgot the guy's name, how did so-and-so know that Lincoln was in that piece of stone? Well, he was able to see it. God gave a sculptor the ability to see what's not there yet. And the giftedness to carve out of that stone the image of a person. When we get saved, we are like that big block of stone. And God takes the chisel of adversity and it begins to work in our lives. It's not always easy. It's painful at times. But the end result is precious to him. He begins to sculpt out of our lives the image of Christ. But once again, guys, perseverance in the Christian life only comes through the power of God working in our lives as we abide in Jesus. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. It's all through the power of God working in our lives as we abide in Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 10, we read, That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, for all patience, hupomone, and long-suffering with joy. Notice how in those two verses, he talks about walking a walk that's worthy and fully pleasing to the Lord, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, as we increase in our knowledge of God, some wonderful things happen. And one of the things is that we know God in a deeper way, but God uses us in greater ways as well. It's all through his power, though. So he goes on then in verse 6. It says, into your perseverance, because Christian life is not easy. You're going to have to have endurance. But to perseverance, then add godliness. Now, as we've already pointed out, guys, godliness simply means God-likeness or the quality of being like God. It's interesting that the original Greek word literally meant to worship well, to worship well and describe the person who was right in their relationship with God and right in their relationships with their fellow man. Now this is interesting because I was thinking about this and I thought of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, when he, in verses 23 and 4, when he said, and if you have a gift and you bring it to the altar, he's talking about worshiping God now, and there you remember that someone has something against you. Leave your gift at the altar, go make amends or go, you know, get right with the person who's offended by, uh, with you, and then come back and worship God. And I think that's kind of the idea here that Peter's kind of drawing on. And, and that is that, look, godliness is all about being right with God. We think of it being God-like, so we're right with God, right? But it also has to do with us being right with our fellow man. God wants us, and, and didn't John say this? If you, How can you not love your brother whom you have seen, and yet love God whom you have not seen. And in other words, look, we need to, to love those God has placed in our lives. We need to demonstrate God's love to them before we can ever say we love God. God is saying, great, you love me? Prove it. Love those I put in your life, starting with your 
family, your spouse, your kids, people in your church, the people you work with by simply praying for them, or little acts of kindness, godliness. I think the words maybe reverence and piety probably come a little closer to defining this Greek word uh, in our minds today. But I think godliness is just a good word, and uh, it's the one that, uh, that uh, the translators chose to translate the word in the Greek Peter used. But, but let me just say this. I I'm sorry to say that the concept of godliness has fallen on kind of hard times in our culture today. Uh, many unbelievers associate uh, the word with self-righteousness and a holier-than-thou attitude. Sadly, many pastors have moved away from promoting godliness in the church shows not to appear judgmental towards visitors or new people in the church you know everyone's so afraid of being what god wants us to be because we're afraid we're going to offend somebody you know we have to be like the world to reach the world that's the where the church is at today uh, instead of being way up here you know and being like jesus we're afraid well people will walk in and think we're you know a bunch of holy rollers you know and because, uh, you know, we, we don't uh, drink and we don't uh, go out uh, to certain places where they like to go. And so now we have actually is you have the church moving into bars, using them on the off hours because unbelievers feel more comfortable coming to a bar for church services, you know. And I've even heard more than a few churches now that are doing like on a Sunday afternoon something they call uh, hymns and beers, no, that's just true. Hymns and beers. They sing songs to God and lift the cold one and invite your friends to come out. See, we're regular folks. See, we're not holier than thou. Invite them to come out. See, we're just regular people. We like to have a good time. In fact, in many churches, holiness and godliness are out and cool and being culturally relevant are in. Culturally relevant, I think, is defined as being like the world to reach the world. But guys, let me just say this. Godliness is not a negative thing when it comes to reaching the lost. In fact, listen to me. I think godliness is the greatest witnessing tool we can possess as Christians. See, when we act godly, again, what does it mean to be godlike? And I think of Jesus, who is God, all right? When we act like Jesus to the people of this world, well, let me just put it this way. When Jesus walked the earth, people wanted to be near him right? I mean, little kids flocked to him all the time, didn't they? The disciples were kind of aggravated at that. Get these kids out of here. we got important stuff to do. Just don't, don't, don't shoo the kids away. Let them come to me. The kingdom of God is, is for such as these, right? But, but look at the other folks that were drawn to Christ, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. These were the social outcasts of society back then. Yet something about Jesus drew them. He was magnetic because of his love god is love right first john 4 8 if we're going to be god-like godly aren't we supposed to then be manifest the love of god to people if we really love people with god's love we're not condemning and putting people down and you know reach what well, we're reaching out in compassion and love and concern look spirit-filled christians do that because spirit-filled christians are like jesus and jesus never uh, went around condemning everybody. He said, I haven't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. And, and I just think that 
Far from being self-righteous or holier than thou, true spirit-filled Christians are those that reach out in love and compassion to people. Uh, they're people that others want to be around. Look, the reason becoming like the world to reach the world never really works is because the dynamic in the Christian life has always been in its differentness from the world. I think the church has made a monumental error in these last days in trying to be like the world to reach the world. Don't you know, and I've heard of churches that have light, laser light shows during worship, smoke machines going, you know. And I've said this before. Our responsibility as the church of Jesus Christ is not to compete with the world to see who can put on the most glitzy and, uh, you know, presentation. We are never, ever going to be able to beat the world at their game. If light shows and smoke machines and a lot of hype and energy and that, if that's, you know, pyrotechnics, if that's really what you think the church is supposed to be pursuing because that gets people in the doors, I'm afraid you've made a horrible mistake because the church will never be able to compete with Hollywood or Las Vegas when it comes to that kind of technology and showmanship. And when the church tries to do it, it just comes off as a sad, pathetic counterfeit. Years ago, I was on vacation, and whenever I'm on vacation, I try to go to different churches on Sunday morning. I don't come here because, you know, whoever's teaching for me, they don't want to see me in the front row, you know, taking notes. And, uh, you know, so I don't want to make them feel self-conscious. So I just check out other churches. And this one time, I was checking out a Lutheran church in the area. I'd never been to a Lutheran church before. But this is back when the um, seeker-friendly movement was really going to town. And the skits, remember the skits, you know? And in some of the churches, they had some really talented people. It was like, you know, you were really at a, a play. And they were good, okay? But this one little church in the area, some of the folks, about four people, I think it was, wanted to kind of, that was where it was at. Skits, people like skits, right? So we're going to do skits. But all four of them stood up there with, with a little, with some paper, and they just read like this. I thought, you know what, if you're going to do it, do it right. But you know what, I'd rather just hear your pastor teach the word, okay? But the power, the dynamic of the church has always been in its differentness from the world. Guys, let me just say this. There is nothing more powerful to reach a life for Christ than a transformed life. Because what people out there are going through, they're, they're broken, their hearts sick, their families are falling apart, their marriages are falling apart, they're addicted to drugs and alcohol. They don't need to come into a church and have a light show. They need to come into a church and see people who used to be alcoholics, who used to be drug addicts, whose marriages used to be falling apart, and through the power of the Holy Spirit working in them through Christ, their whole life has been transformed. That's what they need. And really, that's what they want. The only way we're going to reach people whose lives have been damaged and destroyed by sin is if we are spirit-filled believers and we're no phonies. The world can spot phonies. You can spot phonies. They can too. They're not stupid. What we need to give them is something real because it's real for us, right? That's why Paul the Apostle said in 1 Timothy 4.8, bodily exercise profits a little. 
But godliness, that's what, that's what we're talking about. Godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come, the life which now is. Godliness, a life transformed by the power of God, pointing to the life that is to come in heaven. Well, he goes on in verse 7 to godliness, now add brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness. The Greek word Peter used is the plural form of the word philadelphos, which comes from two Greek words, phileo, the word for love, one of the words, and adelphos, the Greek word for brother. Together they mean brother love. Philadelphia, city of Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, right? Phileo love is a reciprocal kind of a love. I love you, you love me. We have this mutual affection for each other. That's phileo love, friendship love. Um, it's a kind of a love that was usually associated with family and close friends. It's a kind of love where people do for each other and uh, meet each other's needs because they have a connection with each other uh, as close friends or in the case where Peter's talking about uh, as members of the family of God. Now, I know at this point, some of you might be thinking, well, I thought we were supposed to love each other with God's love, which is agape, right? Well, that's true. And Peter finishes this list of things we must pursue in the Christian life with, and to brotherly kindness, brotherly love, add love. And here Peter does use the Greek word agape. Guys, agape love is a love that is closely associated with God. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. We just quoted it a minute ago. Of course, we all think of God's love, agape. Just so you know, the word agape is not used in the Bible exclusively of God's love. The Pharisees agapaoed the chief seats of the synagogue. It just simply means to love unconditionally. Yes, it's used mostly of God because he does love unconditionally. But somebody could be consumed with something that they could love unconditionally. More than they love their family, more than they love their health, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But in 1 John 4... Starting with verse 7, we read, John said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And in those two verses, all the words for love come from the Greek word agape. But listen, brotherly love and agape love are not mutually exclusive. I mean, some people think, well, either we love each other with brotherly love or with agape love. No. They're not mutually exclusive and actually should go hand in hand in the lives of those who are children of God. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. How Peter ends this little list is important. You know, we need to have brotherly love, but also agape love. Well, let's talk about that just briefly. But uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, Paul said, But concerning brotherly love, Philadelphus, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love agape, one another. Now look, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We are commanded by Jesus and in other parts of the New Testament, we are commanded to agape our enemies, aren't we? Love your enemies. We are commanded to agape our enemies, which doesn't require feelings, because people, how can I love my I have no feelings for my enemies. How can I love my enemies? God says love my enemies. I can't love my enemies. You have to understand something. God's love is not feelings oriented. It's action oriented. Okay? 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's agape love. Okay, it gives. It's not motivated by feelings. I'm not saying that feelings never accompany. I'm just saying feelings are not the motivation to show God's love. God's love acts when there is a need. Okay, that's the idea. And so we can love our enemies by loving our enemies. It just means to practically help them if we can or to meet a need that they may have. The Good Samaritan parable, right? Because he said, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. They were always arguing which, which of the 613 laws were the greatest. So Jesus whittled it down to just two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. In these two contain all the law and the prophets. They're all in this love God, love your neighbor. Well, the Pharisees, lawyers, they're, give a lawyer a simple concept. They will always mess it up, make it complicated. Because they didn't want to, they want, well, who is my neighbor? See, the Pharisees taught, my neighbor was a fellow Pharisee. I only had to really love them. Jesus said, okay, well, he knew where they were coming from. He's talking about there was a certain uh, man, this Jewish guy, who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now that is down, and a treacherous stretch of road back then, a lot of robberies. And he fell among thieves who beat him, robbed him, left him laying on the ground half dead. In the course of time, here comes a priest, Jewish priest, holy man, sees his brother, Jewish guy, Laying on the ground, doesn't want to get involved, crosses on the other side, passes by. In the course of time, here comes a Levite. Now, another very holy man, right? These were professional servants of God in the temple. He sees the guy, fellow Jew, lying there bleeding. Looks like he's almost dead. He doesn't want to get involved, walks on the other side of the street, goes his way. In the course of time, here comes a Samaritan. I love the Lord. To make the Samaritan the hero of the story. Wow. Wow. In the course of time, here comes the Samaritan, sees the guy lying there. Now, the Samaritans and Jews were perennial enemies, right? But he sees the guy lying there, and he stoops down, and he binds up his wounds, pours oil and water, uh, excuse me, oil and wine, wine to, as a disinfectant, antiseptic, oil to soothe, bandages the guy, puts him on his donkey, brings him to an inn, and says to the, uh, the innkeeper, here, take care of this guy, and whatever you spend, when I come back by this way, next time I will pay you. Jesus said to the Pharisees, who do you think was more of a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Well, I guess he who had compassion on him. That's right. Go and do likewise. Who is my neighbor? Anyone who has a need, even if he's an enemy. How do I love him? I meet his need. I don't have to have feelings. In fact, if you love an enemy by helping a person who hates you, and God opens the door for you to help them in some way and you do well you just may make a friend you just may make a friend and feelings will come we think well when i feel like it i'll love that person god says no love them and you'll feel like it i say all that to say this there are many churches i'm not talking about churches that really don't know the lord i'm talking about churches that do containing real christians okay it's a lot of churches that they love each other with God's love, agape, in the sense that they will meet each other's needs if necessary. Sometimes it's sometimes there are ulterior motives. Sometimes a person will show kindness to somebody they don't really care for and help them in some way because by doing that, they, they, they kind of think, well, if I am nice to this person, God will be nice to me, you know, or something like that, right? 
But there are churches where people will do for each other, but it's more out of duty. It's not a lot of emotion attached to it. Sometimes people even serve the Lord like that. Revelation 2, letter to Ephesus. You know, you're, you're, you're serving me to the point of exhaustion, but you have no emotion. You, you, you know, you're going through the motions, but you have no emotion. And, and, and I won't stay in a loveless marriage, basically is what Jesus said. Here's the ideal. And I don't see any reason why a Christian church can't walk in this ideal all the time. Look, we got saved. Romans 5, 5 says God poured his Holy Spirit inside of us in the love of God at that moment. Agape. It's there. Okay? It's that agape love that binds us together now as a family. But the only way you're going to really have affection, phileo love, is if you get to know each other. How are you going to meet each other's needs if you don't know what the needs are? Right? Too many Christians come into church and they come in late, they leave early, they don't ever talk to anybody. How are they going to ever develop any kind of affection for anybody in the church when they don't know anybody? They have no idea what the needs are because they don't take the time. I'm not saying they don't love other Christians in the church with God's love, but there's not a warmth there. There's not an affection. There's not a family kind of relationship. I think that's what the Lord is really after and i think that's what uh, peter is really getting to god doesn't want uh, churches that are full of people that you know are bound together with the love of god they're they're saved they're a family but there's just not a lot of warmth there i've had more than a few people over the years tell me you know um when i came to your church we had people that wanted to talk to us they they were warm they wanted to invite us out to lunch uh, it blesses my heart when I hear that because the last church we were at, we were there for like, you know, I don't know, two years and, and we didn't know anybody. Nobody came up to us and, 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 and invited us over for coffee or something. If we're going to be all that God wants us to be, then we have to take the time to get to know each other. That's the only way we're going to show brotherly love to each other. Yeah, we got the agape going. God's spirit is in us. He's knit us together. But we need to know each other oh but i'm so busy that's the problem too many christians are so busy doing everything else other than what god really wants them to do and is to be knit to the body of christ so that you can be a blessing in some way at very least know the what they need in the way of prayer right a spirit-filled church is a place where christians not only love each other with agape love but they really are affectionate towards each other they enjoy each other's company they enjoy being around each other. All right, so let's back up to verse 5 again. So Peter says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, moral excellence. To your virtue, add a disciplined study of God's Word. To that knowledge of God's Word, you know, control yourself. The flesh wants to run wild. The flesh wants to do its own thing. Don't let it. You have the Spirit of God inside of you now. You control that, because the Spirit of God will give you the strength to do that. To self-control, add perseverance. Don't quit when something goes wrong. Don't bail when, when things get rough. Hang in there. God will give you the strength. That's how you learn to be a strong Christian who has got endurance and will last out. Finish the race, right? Your perseverance, make sure you start acting like Christ, everybody. Godliness that you come in contact with. And to your godliness, hey, how about you start loving each other? As brothers and sisters, that's family love. Let's start doing that. And remember, we're all bound by God's love, his agape. 
Verse 8, for if these things are yours and abound, I love it, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will pick it up there, God willing, next week. He has got some incredible things to say throughout this entire epistle, but uh, in the next few verses especially. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Oh, thank you, Father. It's such a, uh, well, it's nourishment to our soul. It's a balm to our weary hearts at times. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your grace. And thank you that you live inside of us and are working from the inside to make us into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Please give us grace, Father, not to hinder that, that we not hinder, Lord, through carnality, through selfishness, the work you want to do, that we would just submit to it, say, here am I, take me, Lord, mold me, shape me. I want to be like Jesus to my family, to my friends, to those I come in contact with at work. Give me grace, Lord, to walk in the Spirit, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.